Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market. Hey, North Texas food fans, welcome to Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News. Each week we dish on the local restaurant scene, food and drink trends, cooking and shopping tips, and unpack everything that makes North Texas one of the most vibrant, diverse, and ambitious food scenes in the country. I'm your host, food editor Aaron Bookie, and today we've got a special interview with the founders of the Dallas Asian American Historical Society and their focus on historic Asian restaurants in North Texas. We'll also be talking about our favorite movie snacks, burnout foods, and why Dallas might finally be a hot dog town. It all gets started right after this. Central Market is really into food, like fish flown in so fresh it still has jet lag into food. Our sourdough starter has been around since grunge was a thing into food. We're talking more prime cuts than a greatest hits album into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then we're the HQ for you. Whether you're a make every recipe in the cookbook foodie or a my favorite recipe is reheat type who just digs the delectable, no place makes every day more delicious like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to talk about a lot of good stuff in this episode, so be sure to go to dallasnews.com slash food after this for detailed show notes. And if you want us to answer any questions or just to say hi or share some food thoughts, email us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. Later on, we'll be talking to Stephanie Drinka and Denise Johnson, the co-founders of the Dallas Asian American Historical Society. But right now, I'm joined by food reporter Claire Baller, special contributing writer Nick Rallo, and our producer Julie Fisk. So guys, let's talk about hot dogs. Nick, you recently wrote a story for us about the rise of the sit-down hot dog, which was very clever, by the way. I also like that you called them evening wear dogs, which is very Dallas-sounding. Can you tell us a little bit about the story and your research? Yeah, I've been, I love hot dogs. First of all, it's one of my favorite snack foods. And I think it's interesting that Dallas doesn't have a linear culture of hot dogs in the city like other cities do. I mean, Obviously, New York has the the street carts, and uh, I lived in L.A. for a bit, and one of my favorite things ever was to come out of shows, and there would be, you know, somebody with a, a portable griddle and hot dogs wrapped in bacon, and they would have um, a foil-wrapped griddle with grilled onions on it, and it was always outside of a show, and I would always get it, and just Dallas doesn't have a culture like that. Street dogs aren't a thing, obviously, because we're probably not as walkable, but every now and then we'll get a really cool hot dog joint and then it just won't make it for whatever reason. So I kind of always keep an eye on it. And I started to notice that hot dogs were popping up on menus with higher price tags and they would involve Wagyu style chili or a sit down level meal where you'd need like the kingly bib and the fork and the knife (laughs) to have the hot dog experience. And that just that's counter to how I enjoy them, which is usually standing up and maybe like a little street water splashes on you. you know. So I, I thought it was interesting. Not that they're bad. It's more of just an, an interesting Dallas trend that I'm starting to see. It's very Dallas how some of these, especially I think it was the knife yeah. hot dog you mentioned that had the Wagyu yep. style chili. Um, and then you told us about one in Houston that it was like a hot dog yeah. service or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah, it was in, at a <laughs> restaurant called Turner's in Houston. They have a $22 sit-down hot dog service that comes with all the toppings that you want in the condiments and what's called pushcart onions. That's a style of kind of sauteed onions that come to your table. It makes me laugh thinking of the idea of like valet parking for a hot dog. <laughs> that feels very Houstonian Dallas to me. Obviously, a number of Chicago 
Bourne folks like Brian Lusher and Andrew Kelly over at New York Sub, who's doing like $6 hot dogs, he'll roll over with pain and groan if you tell him there's hot dogs with chili on them. You know, he's a purist yeah. when it comes to Chicago dogs. So there's a weird trend where we can't hold on to a really cool hot dog joint. Uh, you know, people still talk about Lusher's Red Hots in Deep Ellum. Right. That was such a favorite. But what what's the gap there between people that loved it and, and not being able to make it? There's something that didn't work. Yeah, that's kind of depressing. I, I miss the good hot dog cultures of other cities and the, the street carts. And so many, so many classic hot dog joints have closed. You could, if you go through the list, there was a place called Dog Stop. There was a ton of Chicago style specific hot dog joints that tried doing their thing and it didn't connect. And I remember talking to the owner of Wild About Harry's and they were saying that they always thought of themselves as custard plus hot dogs. And they thought it was because hot dogs were more of a kid thing. And I thought that was interesting because in every other city, it's considered an adult snack on the way to your thing. Wild About Harry's was one of our favorite places to go. And when that closed... It was heartbreaking. Like we had drawings that our kids had made that were taped up on the walls there. The reality is though, that we didn't go to Wild About Harry's and have hot dogs before we had kids. And once the kids got old enough to not like hot dogs anymore, we stopped going. Even though I've never really considered it a kid food. They're just so unhealthy. Like we have to address that. (laughs) That's what makes them so good. (laughs) You know, that's one of the joys of Eastern Europe. I went to Copenhagen uh, when I was younger and in college, and there was a lot of the hot dogs that were kind of like immersed in a bun tube, like a kolache almost, or a sausage roll, and it eliminated the visual of the hot dog. So you're just like, oh, I'm just eating some bread. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, what's your favorite way to eat a hot dog? Like, are you pretty traditional? I do love everything that happens with a Chicago hot dog. If I have a chance, I'll put a salad on it. I'll put the tomatoes, the pickles, the sport peppers, I like all of that acid on it. Like the ketchup on hot dog, I agree, I would agree with the Chicago, Tennessee, that that's just ridiculous. Like, don't, <laughs> don't do that. But I get, I see the appeal. I love lots of grilled onions on a hot dog. And also the New York style with sauerkraut and brown mustard. I, I keep sauerkraut in my house just for hot dogs. So why do people take hot dog toppings so seriously? And this comes from someone who's married to a Chicago native who is judged constantly for wanting to put ketchup and mustard on my hot dog. But what is that? Like, you can order a baked potato with sour cream, and if someone doesn't like it, they're not going to say anything about it. But if you order a hot dog and someone disagrees with your toppings, like, they're going to take it personally. Why is that? And, I mean, what if I want to put mayonnaise on my hot dog? Which is an Eastern European thing, too. Like, they'll throw mayo on a hot dog. I also will put ketchup on a hot dog, and I'm always shocked. So I'm not – I'm, like, not a huge hot dog person, but then every time I eat one with – some ketchup and some mustard. I'm always like, this shouldn't be that good, but it's really good. Now, what about the bread? I feel like the bun is sort of key also because a dry bun can just like ruin the whole thing. Oh my God. There's a lot of the chefy, chefed up hot dogs around here that are doing the yep. like buttered lobster roll thing. And sometimes I want to groan a little bit, but of course, then you eat it and you're like, oh, wait, this is delicious. It's a lobster roll that's seared and buttered. <laughs> sometimes you order these sit down hot dogs and you want to make fun of it and then they're really good. But I, I love a soft bun like mm-hmm. that feels steamed 
I think that's the the way to go there. Nick, do you think that hot dogs could be the next Nashville hot chicken in Dallas? Oh man, that's that's a great question because we have so many fried chicken spots now, and there I feel like these new sit down dinner hot dogs are are like the gateway back to regular you know everyday hot dog. You know, Dallas loves to get back to, on these trends as though mm-hmm. they're, it's the first time going around the the cycle on the, you know, and I feel like people will be like, well, what if we had like a casual place that did hot dogs and, you know, it wasn't 15 to $16 and Dallas will give that a go, you know, <laughs> you know, the more you look at bar menus now, the more they're adding a hot dog. When I ask people, why are chefs and owners doing this when we've all seen that hot dogs don't work? They'll just say, because I like it, because I want it on the menu. I got to wonder if part of that too comes down to cost. I mean, you think about the price hikes that restaurants have been up against in terms of ingredients and you look at hot dogs and they're pretty easy to get. They are really affordable and don't take that much overhead to serve and get on the plate. So it seems like a really cost-effective way to give someone something that is like proven to be loved and yes. easy for restaurants to manage. Yeah, and and I also think that there's there's something to be said about the comfort food renaissance we went through over the past few years, you know, when the pandemic started, I, I remember reading about how the demand for mac and cheese went through the roof. I think Kraft had triple digit numbers of increases in in mac and cheese purchases because people wanted to go back to the the feeling of comfort. It kind of makes sense to me that the thing that would follow would be hot dogs popping up more and more because it reminds us of the easy, quick comfort food that made us happy right away, but then maybe, you know, pain later as we (laughs) ate more. So Nick, when you're craving a hot dog, what are the top three places that you would hit? I I would definitely right now go to New York Sub because when he introduced hot dogs, I think it was over the pandemic, he does a uh, Fort Worth dog. It's Chicago style across the board, but it is a Fort Worth dog. And I think it has the perfect uh, snappy, juicy sensation that's really good. I do love Thunderbirds because you can get Lusher's Red Hots there. Thunderbird doesn't overtop their hot dogs, which I love. The the chili dog, which can be overwhelming, is th- there's not too much of it where you're you want to <laughs> die after. Um, <laughs> and an angry dog, of course. Okay, so on the topic of comfort foods, um, there's something I've been thinking about a lot lately: burnout foods. Like, what do you eat when you are completely out of ideas and energy? I know that feeding yourself three times a day can be really exhausting sometimes and that's okay like it's even for me it's exhausting and I get tired of thinking about food so anyway I wanted to get some ideas from you guys what are sort of your definitions of burnout food I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because everyone I know is burned out. And I think cooking and meal planning goes hand in hand with that, especially, I mean, it's hard enough to figure out what you're going to eat every day. But then if you're feeding a bunch of picky people, that throws a monkey wrench into it. Like I used to love meal planning. I used to love like sitting down with a cookbook and a cup of coffee. Not anymore. In fact, the one thing that I lean on heavily right now uh, eggs, fried egg sandwiches, omelets, whatever. I just, I egg everything anymore. Same. Put an egg on it or a frittata. Scrambled eggs. I mean, eggs are your friend, I think, for burnout foods. If you can eat them, of course. Right. I'll like make a big bowl of grains and put a fried egg on top. I think another key thing is planning for burnout. Just like you were saying, Julie, like 
I love to cook. I cook a lot, but what I have to do is plan ahead, knowing that at some point in the week, I will hit burnout and not feel like cooking for myself. And so that's when I also lean heavily on freezer stuff. So like in my grocery run, I will like have my list of things that I'm getting for meals for the week and then grab a few things for burnout meals. Um, Like I like frozen dumplings, super easy to warm up, compare them with any number of things like a quick steamed or roasted broccoli or something like that. Um, But I think that's key is like planning to hit a wall (laughs) at some point and having a game plan for how you're going to feed yourself. That's so smart. It's like thinking ahead, like knowing yourself and knowing, you know, you can have all the grand ideas in the world for cooking for the week, but it's probably not going to happen. I hit the wall so hard during the pandemic. I, it immediately reminds me of those first few months when we were more locked in than ever and restaurants were closing and things like that. And your grocery run was the only food options and you'd open the fridge and just do the deep side because you were tired of of eating all of those options. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was kind of a little bit of a wave that I I, I think I contributed to where I would be like, I'm going to pickle something every day. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do Sourdough. a tour. I'm going to do a tour of Europe of dinners. <laughs> and then it would cut to, you know, me folding an American cheese slice into fours and being like, I have edible post-it notes. <laughs> it was just sadness. Uh, That that burnout was so real that it would get to the point where you would think, what's the single fastest way of food can go in my face, (laughs) you know, while experiencing some joy? My first two options are what we just talked about, a scrambled egg thing with some toast is a quick way to not feel like everything's bad. And the other thing that, Claire, you mentioned planning ahead I did a genius thing that I'm still proud of myself for doing because it paid off so well, which is I ordered the suite of David Chang's, the Momofuku noodle pack. Yes, I did that The ramen too. that he released. Oh, that yeah. was before they were offered. They're offered at Central Market now, which is incredible. And it's a great way to plan for a burnout meal is to use those because it's a blank slate in the ramen cooks brilliantly and I so I had all those packs going into the pandemic you know it cooks in like two minutes where I would realize that I'd eaten it and cooked it all standing in the same place like I hadn't moved my feet at all and I was like (laughs) that feels like pretty prime burnout when you barely move between food and eat (laughs) so (laughs) one thing one of my burnout meals and this is something that my mom made for me when I was a kid which I will say when I get burned out I 100% revert back to like nine-year-old me making (laughs) snacks for myself after school, like put everything in a tortilla. But one of my burnout things is taking instant ramen, adding a little bit more water than you would use and making like an egg drop soup with it. So Mm. scrambling an egg and drizzling that in towards the end. And so it's like a little bit better for you, right? If you're (laughs) eating an egg with it. (laughs) What about you, Erin? Oh gosh, a block of cheese, just like gnaw on it. (laughs) What, wait, what kind of cheese like is it just a block of cheddar just you know yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah no I'm I, I get burnt out a lot and I'm one of those people who has like just overly ambitious ideas and grocery lists and you know by Tuesday or Wednesday I'm like exhausted so I follow some um, ADHD dietitians on Instagram and I really love it because they're you know even if you don't have ADD I think these tips can be really helpful for people 
with burnout and just feeding yourself, finding something nutritious when you don't feel like cooking anything or can't even think. You're very just overwhelmed by all the choices. Because I think that's another factor in this is decision fatigue. Like there are just so many options. And usually that's kind of the source of my burnout is like, I do not want to make another decision. Sometimes you just need like, you know, a little baby bell cheese to give you some protein and like feed your brain again so you can make another decision. (laughs) Have you ever heard? I think it's Eric Repair. I read this is a famous chef had a brilliant version of instant mashed potatoes that are if you nuke a baby bell in the mashed potatoes for like 90 seconds, it makes instantly perfectly cheesy mashed potatoes. And I, I saw it on Instagram and I was like, that can't be as good as it looks. And I tried it and I, I can confirm that it is delicious. So it's just like in instant mashed potatoes, like a like a pack of instant mashed potatoes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that or if you have leftover mashed potatoes, obviously. Yeah. That's, that sounds that sounds really better. Yeah. I was like, Eric Repair was using instant mashed potatoes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but these um the ADHD dietitians I follow, it's all about Trader Joe's. Oh yeah. I know, Claire, you're a huge fan of Trader Joe's, but they have like a ton of great burnout food options because it's all ready to go, ready to eat. They do even even fresh stuff. Yeah. Which is Yeah, great. exactly. If you just want a salad. This is another reason why we need more street hot dogs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you first called hot dogs a snack, I was like, wow. So is it a snack? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean. Just a little 700 calorie snack. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably something my doctor will listen to this podcast (laughs) and be like, this is where the problems are. Thanks, guys. Stick around. Up next, we're going to chat about historic Asian restaurants in Dallas. Central Market is really into food. Like when we say cheese, it's in 12 languages into food. Butchers, bakers, and sushi roll makers into food. We're talking so obsessive about quality, you can shop blindfolded into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then let us turn your shopping list into a treasure map. Get inspired, get adventurous, or just get a chef-made dinner when you've got more taste buds than time. No place makes every meal more amazing like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Hi, everyone. Today we are talking with Stephanie Drinka and Denise Johnson, founders of the Dallas Asian American Historical Society. They have taken on the important work of researching and cataloging historical artifacts and records from North Texas's Asian American community. And part of that research has led them to dig into the long and widely unknown history of Asian restaurants in Dallas. So this is a fairly new project for you guys, right? What motivated you all to start this society? So we started the organization officially this year in April of 2022, but both Denise and I started doing some of this historical research and documentation work last year, uh, specifically after the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and then the shootings in Atlanta where women of Asian descent were killed. So I started looking at the history of race and racism against Asians in Dallas specifically. I was working at another organization called Dallas Truth Racial Healing and Transformation. Uh, So I was researching a lot of the old archives and Denise was doing separate but similar work and we decided to put it together. Truly, I think it was birthed out of frustrations. Not only had Asian American establishments have been struggling during COVID, but that Atlanta shooting was truly hurting the community. I feel like just something had to be done in order to share people's stories and experiences And, you know, more importantly, having our own history be told accurately. 
So what are some different facets of the society and what do you take on? So our mission is to research, preserve, and amplify the legacy of Asian Americans in Dallas. So there's a lot of different things that we have to do. We have to first research all of the old history that was not taught to us in textbooks, and that involves a lot of going through old newspaper archives like the Dallas Morning News um, and obituaries and city directories. And then preserving the history, which is a lot of what Denise is doing and capturing oral histories on videos and then amplifying it. So sharing it on social media through our online collections. And eventually we hope um, some sort of in-person permanent collection at you know, a location that the public can access. What kind of role does food play in this and what kind of led you to dig into restaurants specifically? Yeah, there's two separate paths that we went down with restaurants. So Denise can talk about the uh, current project that we're working on. But the reason that we started with restaurants in general is because the earliest recorded history of Asians in Dallas was Chinese restaurant owners. Um, it was actually Chinese laundromat proprietors who, because of the racism at the time, were forced to close their laundries, and a lot of them went into the restaurant business. So when you start at the beginning of our history, you have to really look at how much was impacted by Chinese restaurants. When I started doing the interviews after the Atlanta shooting and just talking to Asian Americans in the DFW Metroplex, I felt like a common topic that kept being brought up was food and Asian establishments. So I started to feel like it truly needed to be a topic of its own because it's so interlaced with just Asian American culture. And I feel like it has an identity of its own. I feel like since COVID started, local restaurants, I felt like they needed a boost in traffic and exposure. And I wanted a way for everyone to be able to go outside their culinary comfort zones. How are you finding all of this history? Well, we had a really good head start. There was um, an article in a journal in Legacy is a history journal for Dallas and North Central Texas. And it was written by Stanley Solomillo um, called From half a world away. So it was the first Chinese in Dallas, and he covered a span of 1873 to 1940. And he talked about that history of Chinese laundromats, Chinese restaurants. And so we had a couple names of owners of early restaurants that we could use to then dig further into some of the archives. Uh, so we were able to find some history there. A lot of it has been word of mouth, asking people, what's the oldest Chinese or Asian American restaurant that you've been to that you can think of? Trying to find the oldest one still in operation was really difficult. A lot of the work has been trying to find artifacts, like evidence that these places existed because the buildings are no longer there or they're no longer in operation. And so I started collecting old Chinese restaurant menus and matchboxes. And what's really interesting is I would buy the matchbox and then I would, so I would have the name of the Chinese restaurant and then I would look in the newspaper archives and it would lead me to all the stories about the restaurant owners, people that worked in the restaurant, um, when they would go off to form new restaurants or new businesses. So it's just sort of following a, a lot of breadcrumbs. I love the old matchboxes. I feel like that is just genius that you, that you found those. Can you explain a little bit about the laundromat mm -hmm. and the racism and how Asian Americans were forced to leave that business and go into restaurants? Sure. 
So, you know, the first Chinese immigrants in the United States um, either came for the gold rush to kind of find their wealth and go back to China or found jobs with the Transcontinental Pacific Railroad or some of the other railroad companies. And so after the railroads were completed, they, you know, migrated and looked for other jobs and laundry was seen as women's work. And so there was a need for a laundromat business, but women couldn't own businesses and then white men didn't think that role was something that they wanted to do. And so Chinese laborers, you know, they didn't come thinking they wanted to open laundries, but it became something that they were able to do and not necessarily compete with other people in the community. And they were really successful in downtown. Eventually, 41 over um, out of 49 laundromats were Chinese run back in the 1880s during that first wave of immigration. But it was around the same time as the Chinese Exclusion Act Mm -hmm. and a lot of the same anti-Asian sentiment that we see now. And so white laundromats started running ads in newspapers talking about Chinese laundries having diseases and that if you sent your clothes to Chinese laundromats, you ran the risk of getting some vile disease. And so again, echoes of things that we we see now. Yep. And so they closed the laundromats and then some of them ended up opening restaurants. In all of your research, what have you learned about the first Asian restaurant in Dallas on record? So the first um, Asian American restaurant owner on record was a Chinese man named Jim Wing. And in that Legacies article, they talked about him opening his Star Cafe restaurant, Star Restaurant in 1900s. But actually, when I dug further into Jim Wing, his company, Jim Wing and Company, also purchased another restaurant called Moon Restaurant, and that was back in 1896. And so it was even before he opened his own restaurant. And that restaurant, Moon Restaurant, there's a reference in Dallas Morning News in August 14th of 1896, because one of the proprietors of that restaurant passed away. So we see a lot of um, obituaries for Chinese immigrants because there were so few of them that they were notable at the time. And so I think Moon Restaurant was actually the first, but the one that people know about and have researched is Jim Wing and Star Restaurant or Jim Wing Cafe, which he opened. And it has a really pretty long-standing history. If you think about the longevity of the restaurants in that era, if that restaurant opened in 1900, it was very successful. It was on Main Street. So all of these restaurants um, and laundromats were right in the heart of downtown Dallas. And Jim Wing's restaurant was um, was sort of the place to go downtown for lunch. And what was interesting is in my research, I actually found an article that talked about when Galveston News opened Dallas Morning News and the the newspaper started, the building didn't have a cafeteria. So the Dallas Morning News employees would go eat lunch at Jim Wink's Cafe. Oh, awesome. What's kind of the longest standing one that is like currently still open? So the longest one that we can find is Hong Kong Cafe, which is on Garland Road. And that would have Mm -hmm. the first advertisement for that was in 1963. And so it's still standing. So there was a way there was a period where during the Exclusion Act, a lot of the Chinese immigrants either went back to China or they moved to San Francisco Uh, because of the Page Act. Women were rarely allowed to come into the United States from Asia. And so they weren't able to, you know, make families here and plant roots and build that generational legacy that 
other immigrants have been able to. And so then a second wave of Chinese restaurants opened in the 1940s, 1950s. And that's sort of when Hong Kong restaurant was started. And so how have you seen the Asian restaurant scene kind of grow and change from that second wave period in the 50s and 60s? One of the really cool things about what's happening now is we're seeing a lot of niche spots and establishments. So it's something that's more specific, we have Tofu House, something that specializes in Korean fried chicken. Um, there's like a Sichuan place, a Molnangmyeon place. So, you know, before it would be like an umbrella establishment, it's just Asian food or a place like Korea House that would, you know, offer sushi and other dishes, orange chicken, even though, you know, it, it's a, a Korean cuisine establishment. But now that we're seeing specialized places, and not only that, but fusion places like Indian tacos or Indian pizza. I, I think it's truly a testament of the change that's happening in the area. Yeah. And I guess with the food too, like maybe, you know, in the fifties and sixties, was it sort of that Americanized version yes. of, of Chinese food and mm-hmm. Asian food that a lot of people here grew up on, but now there's so much more. What's interesting too, another interesting history was that in East Dallas, there was a community that was known as Little Asia, and it was where a lot of the um, Southeast refugees were were placed after the wars, and they had a community that developed where a lot of the refugees brought seeds of plants and vegetation back from their home countries and planted them in front of their apartment complexes. Well, the landlords were upset having, you know, <laughs> these random plants in front of their their buildings. And so a group of community activists started a, a community garden for them to plant their vegetables and all of these plants from their home countries. And it's still in operation today. They used to have farmers markets before COVID. And so they were able to grow ingredients and vegetables that weren't native to America and not native to Dallas. And now that that garden has flourished and people have taken those plants and replanted them elsewhere. And now some of these uh, specimens that weren't native are widely available. And so we can have more authentic recipes with bok choy and all of these special peppers and things that, you know, weren't present in the 1950s in Texas. And that community garden is still thriving today. Mm-hmm. Whenever I drive by, I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing that this is here. Yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah. And so I guess what are some of your favorite places to dine at these days? I was adopted from Korea uh, by white parents. And so I tried to get back in touch with my culture and sort of reclaim my heritage through food. So I spent a lot of time in Carrollton and at Korea House in Dallas trying to try all of the food that my birth family has every day that I don't get to be a part of. And it helps me you know, feel connected to them. Oh, that's wonderful. And what about you, Denise? I am very fascinated in general with Sichuan peppers. I don't know if you guys have had that, but it's just, Mm -hmm. there's a numbing aspect to it. And I don't understand what is happening in my mouth when I eat anything with it, but I kind of crave it. So my favorite place to go to is Taste of Chengdu in Carrollton. And they make this mapo tofu, which I think is the best mapo tofu. People will fight me (laughs) about that. But in my opinion, it is the best. And I kind of crave it every week. So that's really bad. But also, I I love sandwich hag. They have amazing bunnies. 
So what do you guys wish that more people knew about the history of Asian American cuisine in North Texas? I wish people knew a lot more about the history of the people who opened these restaurants, who worked in these restaurants, thinking about those early Chinese immigrants who left their families and everything they knew to come to a country where they didn't speak the language and were able to open these these businesses and be part of the community. Jim Wing, who is also known by the Americanized name as Joe Hay, his obituary was in the Dallas Morning News and they talked about him being philanthropic and how he would give food to the penniless and was really a part of of Dallas and we and we don't know his history and we don't know what happened to these restaurants because of so many of the exclusionary laws. So what I hope people understand is that those gaps in history are also for a reason and being critical of why we only have, you know, a handful of restaurants that were before the 70s here. Well, thank you guys so much um, for being on the show. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Putting all of that information together, I know like how hard it is, but it's really fascinating. And I'm so glad you guys are doing it. I love it. Thank y'all for your support. We love seeing all the stories. Stay with us. Coming up in our next segment, we talk about our favorite movie snacks and why Junior Mints are obviously the best. That's right after this. Hey, listeners. This is Christopher Wynn. I'm the arts and entertainment editor for the Dallas Morning News. And that, thankfully, includes the food team that you're listening to right now. What I love about this beat is that food stories are people stories. Restaurants say a lot about who we are, our culture, and the health and well-being of our communities. If you want to help continue supporting this good work, it's easy. Just subscribe to the Dallas Morning News and become a member. You'll find a special offer just for listeners at dallasnews.com slash listen. Welcome back, everyone. So if y'all don't know, our producer, Julie Fisk, is amazingly multi-talented. She's not only an experienced radio professional, but she's also a film critic who regularly appears on Good Morning Texas to talk about movies. So Julie, you had this idea to talk about movie snacks. So why don't you tell us about your favorites first? Well, I have different favorites for different things. Right. And sadly, alcohol plays into that quite a bit. <laughs> like I am a big fan of the AMC Theater at North Park because the seats are very comfortable, but also because they have a bar are there called McGuffins, and they have pretty decent prices for mixed drinks. Now, that said, their wine prices are over the top. So if you want to have a glass of wine with your movie, I would recommend the Angelica. They've got more doable wine prices. Plus, I'm also a big fan of independent movies, and it's just a cool theater. Now, if you want food, like you want to sit down and have a whole dinner, I love the Alamo Draft House primarily because of their pepperoni pizza. They've got a really good Brussels sprout flatbread as well, but that pepperoni pizza is hard to beat. I've actually not had anything there that I didn't like, but the pepperoni pizza and the giant bowl of popcorn is always going to be what I order. That said, the pizza is going to make your breath smell awful, horrible. So if you get one of those, do not try to like whisper to the person sitting next to you afterwards because they will hate you. Guys, I haven't been to a movie theater, I think since before COVID. I have a baby, so that's a good excuse. But I, Alamo Draft House was a go-to. Although I will say eating a full meal in the dark is difficult. You have to really be choosy about what you pick. The pizza is a good option. I have made wrong choices. I would get the like gyro from from Alamo Draft House, which is not, not a good thing to eat in the dark. But you know what I just realized? Why don't movie theaters have kettle corn? I went once when I think I was in college and a friend of mine actually popped a bag of popcorn at home and shoved it in her bag. (laughs) (laughs) And no one could see it. I was like, I'm never going out with you again. Like, this is borderline humiliating and sad. 
you know, during the pandemic, we didn't really go to movies. So I'm kind of rediscovering the movie experience again with my son, who's nine. And so, of course, we have to see every single Marvel movie. Um, <laughs> so we've been going to the movies a lot. And man, movies have changed. And we ordered some like chicken nuggets, pizza, things like that. And it wasn't horrible. And it wasn't horribly priced either. But there are just so many more options now for food. Julie, you mentioned two of my absolute number one and two favorite in movie snacks, which it has to be at the draft house if is the best way to eat at a movie theater. I mean, everywhere else has a few picks, but the unlimited popcorn at uh, the draft house, I love it so much because it comes in like the, the two gallon metal bowl. It's like the cooking bowl that you use to prep and they fill it to the brim with popcorn. And the best thing ever is to ask for real butter and then also ask for their side of their Parmesan and parsley blend. And then you just dump that in and What's great about eating in the dark there is that you don't have any shame. To, you don't know how much you've eaten and you can actually ask for another one, which is mind blowing to me. Yeah, yeah. And the pizza too. Their pepperoni pizza has something happening with it. Uh, I don't know whether it's added garlic or the crispiness of the pepperoni on it, but it's another thing that you can eat without unlocking your eyes from the movie. And something happens with it where it like dilates my pupils and like I can't see or hear anything else around me when that pepperoni pizza is in front of me and it gets into your brain like an old pizza hut pizza would or something like a like an old primal kid thing happens when you're eating that pizza those are two of my favorite things and I I love popcorn during movies it's my favorite thing part of that I think comes from horror I watch a lot of horror films and there's something about like being able to like nervously eat popcorn while you're watching <laughs> horror is like a way to get through it. You know, if I eat anything chocolate in a movie theater, I come out with chocolate <laughs> on me somewhere. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how careful I am growing up. My favorite movie theater uh, snack was the cookie dough bites. I loved those things and they're like pretty self-contained, but somehow I would always have like chocolate shards melted on my lap. One of the things you have to be careful for, though, uh, in when you're eating something in the dark like that is the really messy foods. Um, because uh, I was watching that. The, it was the, the Tom Hanks movie where he played Mr. Rogers. And the man sitting next to me had the juiciest burger in the world. And he had that first bite where all the juice and everything <laughs> sprayed out. And I literally got oh. meat juice, mustard, and ketchup in my hair. Oh, some of it was in my lap. It was the most disgusting. Oh, <laughs> you were hit with a wave of meat juice. That's not great. And that's all the time we have for Eat Drink DFW this week. Thank you all for joining, and I hope we've made you hungry for more. We also want to hear from you, so share your food thoughts with us by emailing eatdrink at dallasnews.com. The show is produced by Julie Fisk. To stay up to date on every episode of the show and hear more from our newsroom, just follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate the show and give us a good review. Find links to everything we do at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find a special membership offer there just for listeners. For the news, I'm Erin Bookie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.